Well, good morning, everybody. I was at Disney World last week, skipping church. I looked for church services at Disney, and uh, <laughs> they didn't offer them. I'm sure if you would have been willing to drop some more money, maybe they would have uh, been willing to offer a worship service. Um, it was a great uh, time. I hadn't been to Disney uh, in a long time, and it was fun being able to go with uh, my family and especially see my little kids as uh, they were uh, pretty excited about going to Disney, right? Yeah. yeah. The thing with Disney, though, is you could make a living just living in Orlando. If you just stand next to someone, say something nice to them, maybe do something nice, then all you have to do is just stand there and wait. Because everyone in Orlando, especially around the Disney area, area you have to tip them. No matter who it is and what they do, if they, just, if they picked your bag up from right here and moved it to this side, you've got to give them a tip. And so everywhere we went, I just felt compelled, like, wow, that guy smiled at me. I should probably tip him because he smiled at me, and this guy did this, and so I should tip him. So outside of that, it was a very fun uh, experience, so I was very thankful to go, but I missed uh, being here uh, last week. So I know for me, when I'm not here at Genesis, uh, it's a big loss for me because I love being able to just worship with this community. Uh, I know we get to do it every Sunday, but Sunday's only once a week, and so I love being able to gather with you. Uh, so for those of you who are here for the very first time, I'm thankful, uh, very thankful that uh, you are here, and for those who continue to come back, I'm very thankful that you continue to come back. So my name's Michael, by the way, um, so welcome to Genesis. This past uh, Thanksgiving, how many people feel like you maybe gained at least five pounds? Anyone? All right, Danielle Bourgeois, five pounds. Well done. Anyone 10 pounds? No. No one? Well, this past Thursday, we did a, a free Thanksgiving dinner. If you've been coming around for the last few weeks, you heard about it. But uh, one of the things I just was excited to report is that uh, things went very well. And if you were, how many people came here and had Thanksgiving dinner? Uh, at least at Genesis, I mean. Um, one of the things, we didn't get nearly as many people as we had planned for and prepared for, uh, which was obviously a little bit of a bummer, uh, but if you would have seen the people that did come, uh, the, the expression on their face was one of just gratitude and thankfulness. Uh, a few people, one guy in particular that uh, when he left here, left here just pretty big husky guy, left here with just tears in his eyes, just teared up a little bit of just you don't know how much uh, this meant to me that I could come here and have Thanksgiving with you. So um, we're not sure how God is going to use this past Thanksgiving, what we did, but we trust that uh, he used it to bless those that came. And I think what we did was pretty honoring to God as well. So I wanted to say thanks to all of you. We prepared for about 250 people, which if I can remember is, was 20 20-pound 20 turkeys, about 120 pounds of mashed potatoes, 75 pounds of stuffing, a ridiculous amount of roasted carrots, uh, too many pumpkin pies, which I did not vote for, but uh, like 18 or 20 uh, apple pies and a bunch of brownies. And so uh, there was roughly 50 plus people in our community uh, who made this event happen. So there were people dropping food off um, uh, Thursday morning. So to those of you who cooked and cleaned and prepared and just made this a reality, I just wanted to say thanks. I was very excited and blessed by you that we did what we did uh, as well as we did. 
And specifically, I want to say thanks to Tracy Alexander and John Bandai. Uh, these are the two. that uh, ran point, so to speak, and organized uh, the 50-plus people who were taking care of cooking and, and all of that. So thank you very much uh, for doing that. So uh, before we continue on uh, and jumping into where we're headed this morning in Romans, I want to invite you guys to stand real quick. Uh, and maybe if you haven't met someone, sit next to you or behind you or in front of you, shake their hand and let them know that you are glad they're here. All right. Well, again, welcome. One of the things that uh, I wanted to mention to you was uh, not uh, next Sunday, which would be Sunday, December 5th, uh, but Sunday, December 12th on, uh, at 6 o'clock in the p.m., uh, we're going to do our second, uh, so it's now tradition because we're doing it two times, uh, our Christmas party. So uh, we're going to have church on Sunday morning at normal time, 1030, and then for those of you and your friends and family, would really love for you to come back for our Genesis Christmas party. If you were here last year, it was quite an event. We do something called Genesis Got Talent, and uh, people put their talents on display, whether it's singing or dancing or some poetry or you know some well, what David Letterman will call a stupid human trick. Uh, so. Right this year, we only have space for about 15 people to actually do a talent and perform and vie for the, the grand prize. Last year, we gave away an iPod, so this is not just a, a little gift card to Chipotle, which although would be great. Um, so December Sunday, December 12th at 6 o'clock p.m. will be uh, almost a lot of nice flavored coffees and fancy Christmas drinks, and uh, Genesis got talent, so please plan for that. Uh, two Sundays from now. Um, we are in Romans. This is week number nine that we are walking through Romans. And today we come uh, to a pretty significant text. Not that the other text that we have walked through has not been significant, uh, but today uh, some have called this is the heart not only of Romans, but the heart of all of Scripture. So the few verses that uh, hopefully we'll get through uh, are that significant. So I wanted to pray and then we're going to jump into Romans chapter 3. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we've got a lot of Bibles that we'd love to give to you. So when you walk in, uh, the entrance on that uh, uh, tabletop, countertop, is uh, some Bibles. So if you need one, please feel free to even go now and get one. It's our gift to you. Father God, thank you uh, for being good and kind and gracious. God, I'm excited uh, to be back uh, this morning. Uh, God, I'm excited this morning uh, to walk through uh, these few verses in Romans. God, I know uh, literally these uh, handful of verses uh, in Romans chapter 3 uh, has changed many a man's life. Um, God, I know 500 some odd years ago, it was the, uh, really uh, these verses and the debate and the argument and the understanding of what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 3 uh, was the source of the, the Great Reformation. Uh, so, God, I know that uh, the weight of these verses is very significant. So today, God, I pray that uh, I would be able to uh, preach and proclaim with clarity and just speak truth. Uh, but, God, I pray even more than that, that each of us uh, would have great listening ears to what you would have to say to us in this place today. Uh, God, would you please uh, continue to, to change us where we need to be changed? God, would you encourage us where we need encouragement? 
God, I'm just so thankful that you know every single person in here. You know our stories, who we are, and where we're at, especially in relationship to you. And you can speak into where we are and lead us to where you want us to be, ultimately where we need to be. So God, let today be a great day of us hearing your voice. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think of a time where you... um, basically came to the conclusion of, this was your conclusion, what am I supposed to do now? Where you had that moment in life where you just, you didn't have much to say, and you just had this lingering question of, now what? What do I do now? I remember, uh, I have, I've had many now what moments, but uh, one in particular, for those of you who've known me for a few years, uh, one of the things that uh, was a lifelong dream for me was to go to the Olympics. And in, uh, summer, in the year of 1995, I decided to take the year off uh, from school where I was. And we won't talk about, uh, I went to Ohio State and we had a great day yesterday. We won't talk about that. Uh, but I decided to take a year off from school to train specifically for the Olympic trials. It was my lifelong dream to go to the Olympics and my best shot was a 96, and it was to focus just singly on, uh, on this. And I had one last attempt. Only probably about uh, two dozen people or so make the Olympic trials. And so the qualify, qualifying standard to get there is pretty high. And so I had one more shot to make my, my qualifying standard so I could go to the Olympic trials. Um, and I had competed many times throughout the year trying to make this qualifying standard. And I was always usually within uh, about five-tenths to eight-tenths of a second. Uh, But I couldn't get the qualifying standard. And so my very final, final race, uh, I had one shot left because the trials was coming up in like two weeks. And so missed it uh, again by about five-tenths of a second, which doesn't sound like much. But if you know swimming, uh, it's it's a pretty significant uh, amount of time. Uh, Not huge, but significant. And I remember... Now, you have to keep in mind, ever since I was like six or seven, it was my lifelong dream to go to the Olympics. I didn't do anything else. I organized my entire life around swimming. I was the kid who uh, trained from like middle school, high school, you know, some, somewhere between six to eight hours a day. I was that guy who did nothing else but swim. Um, and so I touched the wall. I looked back up, saw the clock, saw that I'd missed it uh, again by about eight-tenths of a second. And uh, my coach came up to me and said, let's do this one more time. Do you have anything left? And I said, that's it. Uh, I've got nothing left to give. I, that was my, my best shot. I'm done. And it was amazing. As soon as I heard those words come out of my mouth, I'm done, the next thought that came into my mind was, now what? Uh, and I remember never feeling as empty as I felt uh, that night. Uh, I went back to the apartment where I was living uh, by myself and uh, it was probably around 2 in the morning. I'm not sure how I got to, to this place, but it was 2 in the morning. It was CVS, and um, I just was wandering around. I, didn't, I couldn't sleep. I didn't know what to do with myself. I had no one to hang out with, and so CVS was open, and so I wandered into a CVS. And I remember just crying like a little baby in the aisle of CVS, and they must have just thought, do we call the police on this guy? What's going on with him? But I just remember being overwhelmed with this thought of, now what? What do I do? I've realized something about myself. I had chased something 
for so many years and for so long, and I realized what I had chased, what I had pursued, it was gone. Like it was over. And I just realized, wow, I have now such an empty shell of a person. What do I do? So that was my, one of my many now what or what do I do moments. I asked you what yours was. Have you ever come to that point in time in life where you just realize, now what? What do I do? You realize maybe something about yourself, whether it was something you didn't like about yourself, but you were left with this conclusion of, what do I do now? I hope at some level over the past five, six weeks, we've been having some more of those moments, that you have been having some more of those moments where you started to realize, now what? If what God is saying about me is true, I'm looking back to specifically Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18, all the way through Romans chapter 3, verse 20. What do I do now? If this is true of me, and this is true of who God is, what do I do? Uh, I think the Apostle Paul sums up kind of his main argument in the last two chapters in uh, Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is God's assessment of humanity, that humanity is absolutely sinful, that there's not one of us who could ever approach God out of the six billion people on the planet right now and could ever approach God and say, I'm the one who's actually has some righteousness, or I'm the one who is worthy or without sin. No one could say that. And I think what Paul is ultimately trying to, to make crystal clear is get us to a point of, what do I do now? If this is really true of me, what do I do? If I am really as sinful as Paul and his scripture is, is teaching, would I actually be humble enough to ask the question, well, what do I do? And one of the things, we can always have two responses. When I ask the question, what should I do? If this is true, and my question is, what should I do? I can either start working my tail off to live a righteous or immoral or religious or a very pious life. I can start working really, really hard trying to perform for God. But the main problem with that is really twofold. You're always left with this question, have I done enough? It's a terrible way to end your life with that last question, did I do enough to merit or earn salvation or God's favor? What a terrible way to die. Thinking to yourself, did I do enough? And that's the hopelessness of a works performance-driven life. And uh, Jeremy did a great job of teaching this last week. He said in Romans 3.20, Paul says this, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Like, none of us could work hard enough or perform enough or be religious enough, moral enough to merit salvation. And so our first response is, I will work. Hopefully you'll see that doesn't, that won't help you. And I think what a godly response would be is if it's, I cannot, if I can't work, then to come to the conclusion, and this is, I think the, a good godly conclusion is, I can do nothing. And have you ever come to that conclusion where you've just, 
deep within yourself realize, wow, there is nothing that I can do to merit, earn God's favor, God's salvation, God's righteousness. It's a great statement to make, but it takes a humble man or a humble woman to actually be able to declare, I can do nothing. But when you get to that point, you stop looking from within, looking within yourself of trying to do something, and you start looking to God to do something for you. And at the heart of what Paul has been trying to do in Romans chapter 1, through all the way where we are today, is this question of, will God do for us what we cannot do for ourselves? Before I read, I'm going to read actually in its entirety, Romans chapter 3, the the few verses we're going to look at. But before I read these few verses, uh, I I prayed this, but these passages, uh, some very profound biblical scholars, thinkers through history have declared that this section of Scripture that we're looking at today, uh, in their opinion, uh, might be the most significant few verses in all of Scripture. In all 66 books of the Bible, uh, this is what, and the guys that I'm quoting are all men who, at some level, devoted, dedicated their lives to studying the book of Romans, the letter to Romans. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse said this, I am convinced today, after these many years of Bible study, that these verses are the most important in the Bible. These verses are the most important in in the Bible. Uh, Another uh, scholar, uh, Dr. Leon Morris, said this, possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. So the few verses we're looking at, in his humble estimation, the most important single paragraph ever written. Martin Luther was well known for saying this. The chief point and the very central place of the epistle and the whole of the Bible, referring to Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21. And then a more recent scholar by the name of J.A. Packer uh, said this. One of the things we're going to talk about today is the doctrine of justification. Uh, We'll unpack that when we get there. But he said this, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, this is what we're talking about today, is the atlas that carries the whole of the Christian faith. Meaning, if we get, if you and I get these few verses that we're looking at today, the whole of our Christian experience, the whole of our Christian faith will look very differently because of how we understand Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21. This is what it says. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's a powerful sentence right there. Righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Verse 25, God presented him, being Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just 
and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, I felt like I tried to read that slow, but there are so many crucial truths in these just few verses that we're going to talk about. Um, But I just want that just to sit and to resonate with you. So I will probably be a little bit more um, meditative today and that I really want to draw you into what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 3. It's a beautiful thing. He starts off in verse 21 by saying, the very first thing he says is, but now. Now, it might not seem like two very significant words by any means, uh, but again, to quote Martin Luther, this is what Luther said. There are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than just these two words, but now. Okay, so Martin Luther makes some pretty big claims. <laughs> but to say that these two words, but now, are the most significant words in all of Scripture is a pretty profound thing to say. And he's either way off or he's, he's on to something, and I think the latter, that he's on to something. If you've been paying attention to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through Romans chapter 3.20, Martin Luther understood correctly Humanity must begin to ask itself, what do I do now? There is a sense of hopelessness of, wow, I am absolutely corrupt, sinful, rebellious against God. And the, uh, as the righteousness of God has been revealed, Paul made clear the wrath of God has been revealed as well. And so what Paul is doing just in these two words is we have a huge transition not just from what is dark and gloomy of the wrath of God and and the punishment of sin, bless you, but what Paul is now doing is transitioning into this is God's response to humanity's tragic predicament of being utterly sinful. Paul returns, he says, but now of righteousness, if you go back to verse 21, Verse 21 says, now a righteousness from God. If you remember uh, chapter 1, verse 17, it says a righteousness of God has been revealed. Paul is now returning. There was roughly, how many did I count? Uh, 63 verses. He started with righteousness of God in verse 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 17. He took 63 verses to explain humanity's predicament and God's holy and righteous just response in punishing sin and and the wrath of God. We need now to, why does he do that? Why did he take 63 verses to highlight just how bad it is? And I think I've shared this before, but unless we understand how bad it is, unless we understand the bad news, we won't really grasp how good the good news is. Does that make sense? Like if you were just to open your Bible and read Romans chapter 3, the verses I've read so far, it would be very encouraging. I think you'd be very blessed by that. But if you skipped over and never read 1 through 18 uh, through chapter 3 verse 20, you wouldn't understand how good this but now good news is. Because the bad news is absolutely horrific. But what Paul does in verse 21 is now comes back to a righteousness that God has revealed. Now, 
What's really great about just this one verse, verse 21, says God has revealed or made known how humanity can become righteous. And what I love about this is the good news that he presents right away is very, the good news is twofold. It's a righteousness that's apart from the law, meaning the righteousness that God has for us is not a works, performance, law-driven righteousness. It's a completely different type of righteousness. So the righteousness God has is apart from the law. It's not works-based. And then the second thing is the good news is actually old news. If you saw in verse 21, uh, apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Meaning this good news that he's proclaiming is actually old news. Let me ask this question. Do you think the gospel, Jesus, the Son of God coming, living a perfect life, dying on a cross, raising from the dead, is that plan B? Is what Jesus did accomplished, is it plan B? If it's plan B, then we probably have some questions and issues with, is God really God? I mean, if God didn't orchestrate this and ordain this before, like if he didn't know what humanity would do, and now this is just a reaction to what we're doing, I would really question and wonder, is God sovereign? Is God really in control? Or is just God just kind of responding to what humanity, how the fickleness of humanity? I don't think there was ever a point in time where, like the God gathered the Trinity together and was like, hey guys, we need to talk. This whole law thing didn't work out, so let's Let's pull straws, and whoever gets the short straw is going to have to go and clean this mess up because plan A didn't work. What Paul says at the very end of verse 21 is, oh, the prophets, everyone in the Old Testament was testifying that this would happen, that God would send a Redeemer, a Savior, a Messiah to do for humanity what humanity could not do for itself. So if you follow the logic of verse 21, righteousness has been revealed, then verse, the next question is, how can you, I, how can we obtain the righteousness that God has revealed? What do I have to do if God's revealed something, made known something, what do I have to do? Like that makes sense, right? If God's revealed something, what's my next step? What do I do next? And Paul in verse 22 through 24 highlights what we do. This is huge. If God has revealed a solution, salvation for us to fix our predicament that we are utterly sinful, then this is the part where we really like, I need to pay attention. If God is revealed, made known, I really need to know what do I do to obtain this righteousness. And I love, it says, verse 22, the righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The righteousness from God comes from or comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Now, the majority of the time, in the next probably 20 minutes or so, uh, I'm going to cover seven truths that we learn from these four verses, or these three verses. Okay, these are seven truths. If you, I know you have a pen because they're in the chairs in front of you now. I'd encourage you to write these down somewhere. 
These are seven truths that should have a profound impact on our lives. And the first truth is this, all stemming from these few verses. Number one, the source of righteousness is rooted in God. The source of righteousness is rooted in God, meaning there would be no place, no time for us ever to say, it's because of me. Meaning there's no place for us to ever brag or boast that I did something. The source of righteousness is rooted in God. That's number one. Number two, the righteousness of God comes to us through faith in Jesus. The righteousness that comes to us from God, number two, uh, through faith in Jesus. Here's a good question that I think a lot of people, maybe in here as well in culture, are asking. Is it enough for me just to say I believe in God? Like at the end of my life, when and we will all meet our Creator, we all meet God face to face, is it enough for me just to look at Him and say, I believed in you? Like, will God look at that and say, okay, welcome to heaven, welcome to my home, welcome to my kingdom? I don't think so. But I think there's a lot of people who believe, if I just believe in God, if I'm a spiritual person, that's enough, that covers me. Paul, what he's teaching here in verse 22, it's pretty clear that it's not just believing in God, it's believing in Jesus and what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished, what he did for us on the cross. I can't just go to God and say, I believed in you. I come to God and say, by faith, I received, I believed in Jesus. Who he is, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. I believe in Jesus. That's the difference of what Romans chapter 3, verse 22 is teaching. It's not enough just to believe in God What we need to believe in is his son, Jesus. Number three, the righteousness of God is for all who believe. I want you to catch the emphasis on all, like capital A, capital L, capital L. The righteousness of God is for all who believe. I don't know if this creates in you, like, are you thankful that there's the all? Like when you hear that the righteousness, God's righteousness is for all who believe, are you excited about that? Or is there something kind of in the back of your mind where you start thinking to yourself, even for that guy? Like I know we all think of uh, that guy. We all have a different, like for some of us, the that guy is the Osama, the Hitlers, the child rapist, the murderer. I mean, the serial killer. He's the that guy. Like that statement where it says that, comes through faith in Jesus, or righteousness of God is for all who believe. I love that it's for all, but I wonder, even him? Like, who is the him or her that you wonder about? When I read uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 22, and discover that it is for all who believe, I'm pretty thankful that it's for all even the that guy or that girl, whoever they may be to you. The problem is, if I start thinking of it's for all, but really is it even for that guy, I start to become the distributor of God's righteousness. And the distribution of God's righteousness is based on what? Performance. 
If you do enough, if you're righteous, moral, religious, spiritual, generous enough, then I will distribute God's righteousness to you. I take the all of God's righteousness and just pervert it into a performance-based righteousness that I get to distribute. So I personally, and I hope you are as well, that God's righteousness is for all people. Even whoever you think might be the worst of people, God's righteousness is for all who what? Who believe. And I think probably even more importantly why I'm thankful for it's for all who believe is I'm part of that all, and so are you. That means because God is, has made known, revealed a righteousness, and it's for all. I'm part of that. So no matter how much doubt I can get filled with because of something I did or didn't do, I can come back to, you know what? My standing with God is not based on my performance in life. My standing with God is based solely on Jesus. Do I believe what Jesus did is sufficient enough for me? Number four. If the reality is that the reason God's righteousness is available to all, it's available to all because all need it. Okay, so the truth of number four is all have sinned and fall short. This is a simple question that I think we'd get 100% return. Everyone would say yes, but is everyone really a sinner? I think everyone would probably agree. None of us would make the statement and get up on stage and say, I'm perfect. I've never made a mistake. Like it's not even close to being believable. So I think everyone agrees with the assessment that everyone, doesn't matter who you are, everyone is a sinner. But I think what we do, and this really just reveals how sinful we can be, is I agree that I'm a sinner. I get that. But I don't, I don't think what God gets is that I'm not that bad of a sinner. I agree that, God, I am a sinner, but I don't think you see, God, how not bad or really how good of a sinner I am. Not because I sin so much, but because I sin so little. Paul makes clear, all have sinned. I came across uh, in in doing uh, some reading uh, a great quote by an Anglican uh, bishop. And he said this, The harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of it, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you are on the crest of an alp, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they are. So it might make ourselves feel a little bit better. Well, at least I'm not like that guy or, or this girl, which is just a silly thing to do to ever compare ourselves to someone else to see if we're more righteous or not. The reality is the assessment is God's assessment on us. What a great, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they are. I would venture to say if you're here today and you're in a place where you're just kind of stuck in your relationship with God. Like you're not really seeing too much growth. You're not really seeing too much forward momentum. I think one of the biggest things that holds us back from growing in a relationship with God, I'm talking about a relationship where it's really growing, it's thriving. I'm hearing from God, I'm understanding God, I'm responding to God, I'm seeing God at work in my life or work around my life and people's lives around me, is because of this one lie we choose to believe, I'm not that bad of a person. 
And as long as I choose to believe that lie, I will never fully grasp just how amazing God is, how amazing God's grace is. Like just in studying over these last few months, Romans, uh, these last three chapters, has been so humbling for me of, man, I am really sinful. I can impress myself a false, falsely, but when I just look at myself, look at my motives and just why I do what I do sometimes, it's just so evil. It's just wicked. It's just sinful. The more I grasp just how sinful I am, that's when I begin to grow in my relationship with God because I see just how amazing God's grace is. Number four was all have sinned and fallen short. Number five is this. All, okay, if God's righteousness is for all, number four was all have sinned. Number five is an amazing truth. All are justified. Meaning justification is possible for the all. And I'll explain that a little bit more in point number six, but I just want to stop here. All are justified. A great question is, how will I be justified, made right, with God? If you've never wondered that, I'll force that issue now. How will you be justified, declared just, declared righteous, before God? Paul, in an earlier teaching, actually, in a different letter in Galatians, said this. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Paul's conclusion was, I'm justified by faith in Jesus. I'm not justified by my works, my performance, or observance of the law. So Paul makes very clear that I can't get justified by observance of the law, but I am justified by faith. So a question then would be, ultimately, what does it mean to be justified? It's not really a word we walk around with in modern-day vernacular saying all the time, I'm justified. So what does it mean to be justified, especially justified before God? Does it really mean that I'm just forgiven? That God looks at me and says, well... Because of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. That's not what justification means. Justification does obviously speak into forgiveness, that we are forgiven. But what I want you to catch is justification is not merely forgiveness. You, in justification, a person is literally declared in a legal sense, in God's legal sense, justification pronounces or declares a person to be righteous. Not that we're being made righteous, that's called sanctification. But justification, this is what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 3, verse 24, is justification means that I've been declared, I have been pronounced righteous. I'm not growing in righteousness, I'm not figuring out how to be righteous. When I meet Jesus, receive him by faith at that moment in time, God declares me, pronounces me, I am righteous. Here's what others have to say about justification that I think would be helpful. 
This is uh, A.C. Dixon, another pastor, scholar, author. Through the death of Christ on the cross, making atonement for sin, we get perfect standing before God. That is justification. And it puts us in God's sight back in Eden before sin entered. God looks upon us and treats us as if we had never sinned. That's justification. God looks at you and I very differently. Isn't that amazing? That God would look at us, clearly we're sinners, but God in justification, because we have faith, we believe in Jesus, he declares that we are righteous. Another quote from another scholar, uh, commentator on uh, Romans. Justification means sin is all past and gone, wiped out, not merely forgiven, not merely pardoned. It means clearing the, uh, clearing the slate and setting the sinner before God as a righteous man, as if he had never sinned, as if he were as righteous as the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I hope the doctrine of justification would blow our minds. Because I wonder, how is it possible God could ever look at me, no offense to any of you, could look at you and declare any one of us righteous? How could he ever look at us, knowing who we are, what we've done, what we're going to do, and say, I pronounce you righteous? To those, and the answer to that question is to those who by faith believe in Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. There is a transfer in justification. The righteousness of Jesus is transferred to your account, to use a banking term. Isn't that phenomenal that if we by faith believe in Jesus, receive Jesus, when God looks at me, a sinner, what he now sees is a perfect man in his son, Jesus Christ. I don't want there to be any confusion. I don't become Jesus. I don't become a small G God. But I receive Jesus, and therefore when God looks at me and sees me, I am declared righteous. This is phenomenal. 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I really want us to get what it means that the doctrine of justification, I have been declared righteous. Again, not because of something I've done, but because of something Jesus did, and I have received him, and by faith accepted the righteousness of Jesus in my life. Okay, we might get the how. Because you might, like, well, okay, I get that. When God looks at me, he sees Jesus. Okay, I get that. That kind of makes sense. But the next question I wanted to ask is, why? <laughs> why does he do that? I can theologically get my mind around, if I accepted by faith Jesus, that God sees his son in me, and his son is perfect, without blemish, completely righteous. So I get the how. But if you haven't been floored by that, I want you to be floored by this. I want you to be floored by the why. Why does God do that? 
And it's just grace. Number six is all this is by the grace of God. Here's a, a good theological question to wrestle with, but is God required to save you? Like, does God have to offer a plan of salvation? If you're familiar at all with the story of the angels, he let them fall. There's no plan of redemption for the angels when they decided to rebel and do their own thing. Scripture says about a third of the heavenly host fell, led by Lucifer. He didn't offer salvation to them. So I think sometimes I, we think to ourselves, well, clearly God has to save me because look at, look at this fine group of people. Why wouldn't he want to save us? If you answer yes, that God is required to save a sinful, rebellious people, you just nullified grace. If your answer is yes, God is required or God has to save us, that he must do this, you've nullified grace because if grace is obligated, it's no longer grace. The answer to the question is, does God have to save us? The answer is no. And if I can just sit with that, accept that, embrace that, then when I start to understand, wow, that's what grace means. I didn't deserve any of this, but God still did it. What an amazing God this God is. R.C. Sproul, when talking about the grace of God, said this, Perhaps the most difficult task for us to perform is to rely on God's grace and God's grace alone for salvation. It is difficult for our pride to rest on grace. Grace is for other people, for beggars. We don't want to live by a heavenly welfare system. We want to earn our own way and atone for our own sins. We like to think that we will go to heaven because we deserve to be there. If you think that you deserve to be there, you've nullified grace. You don't get grace. Because at the heart of grace, it says, I don't deserve this. I actually deserve the full weight of God's wrath on me. But the fact that I've been spared of that because of Jesus is absolutely an act of grace. I like how Spurgeon said it similarly. If heaven were by merit, it would never be heaven to me. For if I were in it, I should say, I'm sure I'm here by mistake. I am sure this is not my place. I have no claim to it. But if it be of grace and not of works, then we, we, then we may walk into heaven with boldness. Rather than with this question lingering in our mind, wow, did I really do enough to get here? And did I do enough to actually stay here? But if I get that everything that I have is by the grace of God, then I can enter into heaven's gates with absolute boldness. A great question that uh, people have asked uh, me over the years and certainly has been asked for centuries is this question, if justification is by faith in Jesus alone, then can't faith be seen as a work? Does that make sense? If justification is by faith, that I have faith in what Jesus has done, 
can't I translate or can I understand that faith is actually a work? I've merited justification because I believed. And I think the answer to that would, would be no. To be justified by faith does not mean we are justified because we have faith. I want to be hopefully clear on that. I am not justified because I have faith. I am justified. You are justified because the value of faith is entirely, exclusively in its object, meaning Jesus. Okay? If you remember that, please remember that. I'm not justified because of my faith. I'm justified because of the object of my faith is completely righteous and perfect. Another uh, scholar said this, God justifies the believer not because of the worthiness of his belief, but because of the worthiness of who is believed. Does that make sense? It's not because of my faith. So the plan of salvation did not work out like this, where it's a collaborative effort between us and God. Where God came to man and said, we've got a problem here. You're sinful, I'm holy, we can't hang out together, so I'll provide the cross, you provide some faith, we'll meet together in the middle, and therefore we can have a relationship. There was no collaboration where that conversation took place. There is no collaborative effort. All of this is by the grace of God. God provides the cross. God provides an object, meaning Jesus, his son, for us to place faith in. And the fact that I can even have faith is just evidence, again, of the grace of God in my life. For me, I'm pretty thankful. Uh, I'm going to finish with this. We're not going to cover uh, all of the verses uh, today. We um, had a bunch more to cover, but I feel comfortable of just stopping here. I'm very thankful that the righteousness coming from God that justifies all who believe is by grace, and it's not at all by works. And I guess I can just finish with this. The reality still remains, if it's really by grace, then I'm still left with a decision or a choice to make. Will I try to earn a justification, earn righteousness so that I stand before God, I can flex my spiritual muscle and say, God, you had to have been impressed with how well I lived my life. You can try to do that, but you'll fall short. So the alternative is to receive from God by grace what we cannot do for ourselves. The bridge of works is just filled with holes and it doesn't get us to where we need to go. But the bridge of grace is firm. And I really like how, uh, again, Charles Spurgeon, I know I quote him a lot, he said this of grace, the bridge of grace will bear your weight, brother. Thousands of big sinners have gone across that bridge. Yea, tens of thousands have gone over it. Some have been the chief of sinners, and some have come at the very last of their days. But the arch has never yielded beneath their weight. I will go with them, trusting to the same support 
it will bear me over as it has for them. Decision just needs to get made. If God has made known, revealed a righteousness that is coming from him, that is for us, that we can receive by faith in Jesus and what Jesus has done, it's a free gift. I'm just left with that question of, do I receive this as what makes me just or justifies, makes me righteous with God, or will I still try to live my life trying to do my own thing my own way? Basically, when Jesus said it's finished, I'm either really going to believe that or I will live my life trying to prove that he's wrong, that there's still more work to be done. And I hope that we, you, us as a community, would make the decision, no, when Jesus said it's finished, it's finished. What he did was sufficient, not just for you and for me, but for all who would choose to believe. Uh, Next week, uh, we'll pick up on the next few verses in Romans, uh, specifically talking about atonement and um, some other things that Jesus has done. But I just want to leave us with this thought of, have I received from God what he has for me? And if I haven't, why not? What are you waiting for? So my challenge to you is, if you are that man or that woman who's yet to receive justification from God, righteousness from God in Jesus, receive it today. We're going to celebrate communion in a little bit. And I would challenge you, if you've never received a righteousness from God in Jesus, do so today. Let your prayer be as simple but as profound and eternally life-changing as God, I confess I'm a sinner. I need you to do for me what I cannot do for myself. I receive Jesus as my righteousness. Let that be your prayer. And some of you, maybe many of you, are sitting here saying, yeah, I I did that. I did receive righteousness from Jesus. My challenge and encouragement to you, to me, do I look like that? It's one thing to agree theologically and say, yep, I get it, I understand it, I, I believe that, I know that. But I just want to ask you, if you're there, Does your life reflect one that is so thankful and so just grateful that God did for you what you could never do for yourself? When I read guys like Charles Spurgeon or Jonathan Edwards or Calvin, some of these guys from years and years and years ago, I'm so impacted by the way they write because they were so impacted by the grace of God. Like they got it. Like when you get the grace of God, it gets you in such a way where it radically transforms how you relate with God and understand God and how you relate with other people. If you don't get the grace of God, what will happen is you will live your life thinking God owes you something. God doesn't owe us anything except wrath. But by his grace, he's chosen to give us righteousness. It's a terrible way to live life thinking God owes you something. Grace is the only thing that defeats that mentality, that mindset. Have you received the grace? And secondly, if you have received the grace, does your life reflect, one, 
who has just been wrecked and transformed by this truth of my standing with God. I am declared righteous because of Jesus and Jesus alone. It's all grace. We're going to worship some more and um, invite you just to spend some time praying and not just reflecting on what's been said and what God's been saying to you, but responding. It's a difference of reflection and response and uh, I want to call us to do both. I just believe God's been saying something to you. Respond to what God's been saying to you. Reflect on that and then respond. If you're a Christian, please, when it's, when it's time, when you are ready to come and celebrate communion, come take a piece of the bread and dip it in the wine or juice and just in all humility say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your grace that I can even stand here and acknowledge you. And give you thanks for the cross. And if you're not a Christian, please, it's our heart's desire that you would make that decision to become a Christian. And you could do that today by confessing Jesus as God, his righteousness in your life. God, we give you thanks uh, that you made righteousness possible for unrighteous people uh, through faith in your son, Jesus, as a free gift, as grace. So God, we just give thanks. God, I pray that as we'd go from here, we would be absolutely amazed at what you've done for each of us. God, it seems so little just to say thank you. But that's what we can say is just thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. God, I do pray that uh, you would just bless each of us as we'd go from this place. God, you know each of our stories. You know each of just what our lives look, look like and what we're headed into this week. And God, I just pray that you would bless each of us. God, that your hand of just favor and goodness and just grace would rest upon every conversation, every interaction, every circumstance or situation we will find ourselves in. God, I just pray that we would see all of what we will do this week. Just see your grace all over everything. Jesus, we give you thanks for you've been good. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for coming today. Uh, I know we only covered about four verses, and there's roughly 33,000 verses in Scripture, but uh, they're pretty profound uh, four verses, and I, I, I do pray that you were just blessed and challenged and heard from God in this place today. So uh, come back next week as we'll just continue walking through um, uh, Romans next week. Have a great week. God bless. Peace out.